Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and my guest this time is Principal Lecturer in the Faculty of Media and Communication at Bournemouth University. She's editor of the Studies in Comics Journal, author of Gothic in Comics and Graphic Novels, and particularly for this episode, author of Gothic for Girls, Misty and British Comics. Uh, Dr. Julia Round, welcome to the book club, Julia. Hi, Eamon. Thanks for having me. Now, we, as you know, we normally start with sort of comic or 2000 AD origin stories. Uh, you've got a story about Misty that I read in the introduction to your book. It's particularly relevant to our discussions. And I wonder if you could tell us that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so my Misty project um, dates back far longer than I'd probably like to remember um, to my memory of kind of getting a stack of old um, old British comics at a sort of Gilgai jumble sale when I was about eight or nine. Um, and I kind of took them home and read them. And I found this one story that has kind of remained with me for 35 plus years. Um, and it was about a girl who wasn't particularly pretty and was getting picked on for this. And she got given a magic mirror um, by some kindly old woman um, and told that if she used it properly every day then she would become more beautiful um, and it worked and you know she got more and more pretty and more and more popular but she also became vain and mean and nasty um, and then one day she did something wrong with the instructions and the mirror got broken and when she woke up the next day her face was kind of shattered and warped like a broken mirror um, and the story ended and I in my mind on this threatening narration how would you like to face yourself every day like this um, and I thought wow I wouldn't and I threw the comic away and banned myself from horror comics for a really long time um, but I never really forgot it and so it kind of stuck with me for all this time and was the spurring point when I was looking for a new kind of project to extend my work into gothic comics um, and I started trying to track it down. And it wasn't necessarily an easy story to track down. I know you, you know, you tried various Google searches to try yeah. and identify the story. It's like one of those things we remember from our childhood and we wanted to uh, identify. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you, a surprising number of British um, girls' comic stories deal with mirrors and magic and things like that. Um, so yeah, every so often it would sort of pop into my mind, and I'd get on, go online and kind of you know Google things like mirror. How would you like to wake up like this? Um, horror British girl comic. Um, but I never really found anything. So I decided eventually to do it properly and dig into it and go to the British Library and start reading the whole back catalogue of Misty. I was pretty certain it was Misty, even though things like Judy and Ginty had been put forward as possible contenders. Um, so, yeah, I started going up there and on numerous trips, kind of worked my way through the whole archive and yeah, ultimately found it at last, which was a pretty satisfying and emotional moment. And it was, if I remember correctly, it took it took you a while to actually get to that story. It was one of the last ones you looked at, was it? It was, yeah, for a quirk of fate. Um, one of the binders had been missing on my, my, my first trip, so I was I was reading them out of order. Um, and it's, it's an issue thirty seven, but I didn't. It wasn't in the binder until I read to one of my very last trips. Um, at which point, I was starting to give up hope, but I persevered by that time because I'd come so far. Yeah, so it was a yeah. It felt like everything came together very serendipitously, I guess. And as you say, that was Misty, issue 37 from October 1978. And the name of the story was... Uh... Yeah, Mera Mera, um, with art by Sidri Manez, writer unknown, sadly. Yes, we'll come back to some of those unknown creators in a moment. So having discovered it, you know, found this story, um, did it still disturb you as much as it had as a child when you read it? Yeah, um, it was not as... Um, 
horrifying as I remember in terms of the final page. I think in my mind this had become all mixed up with images of kind of Freddy Krueger and kind of other horrifying sort of melted candle faces and you know all the other horrible films that I'd probably watched in my youth. Um, so the fine, but the final image, it, the layout was exactly as I remember it. The narration was almost exactly you know verbatim to what I'd carried in my head for for so long. Um, so it was as I started reading, I was like, this is the one, um, you know. And as I turned the, the final page, because of course they're they're kind of short four-page stories and they often revolve around that final page turn where you're suddenly confronted with this horrifying image and yeah that was a pretty special moment yes and then from there you i mean obviously you decided uh, to continue re- your researches and you produced this book that we're talking about i mean was that did that something that came out of your british library experiences sitting there pouring through the back catalogue yeah totally i mean my, my plan really was to to satisfy my personal curiosity and kind of uncover a few childhood memories and maybe write a few articles, you know, about kind of this sort of subgenre of, of horror or, or kind of horror stories for girls. Um, but as I kind of started reading the Misty Archive, I mean, I just got totally immersed and sucked into it. It was so much better than I ever thought it would be. Um, you know, it had these this amazing, incredible art, these fantastic exciting page layouts this really interesting balance between kind of what i might call more typical girls comic serials about protagonists kind of on these journeys of self-discovery but balanced with these kind of really horrible four-page cautionary tales of which mera mera was the one i remember it had misty herself you know this kind of beautiful enigmatic ethereal sort of hostess um, who kind of welcomes us to the comic each week and yeah, it, you know, it just surpassed all my expectations. And I, you know, having spent so long making all these notes on the corpus, I was just like, I need to keep going with this. Um, what else can I uncover? Fantastic. So let's. I mean, we often hear about Misty as one of the sort of like great comics, and perhaps should have been continued, which we'll talk about because it only lasted two years, from 1978 to 1980. 101 weekly issues, mostly black and white. But it had the, I guess it had the colour centre spread as well as the colour covers, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's got the four colour pages, so the back and the centre spread generally. And then after 101 issues, it gets um, hatched, matched and dispatched, that familiar phrase, and folded into Tammy, I believe. Yes, great news for us all. Uh, (laughs) And folded into Tammy, um, where it, it lingers in name for quite some time, but its presence is very swiftly kind of edged, edged out, really. Um, what happens is Misty herself, um, our, our, you know, our host for the comic, um, starts alternating the strange story slot um, with the storyteller. Uh, but she doesn't really get a great deal of look in her appearance, start to you know, d- diminish quite quickly. Um, and the Misty serials themselves, um, there's one that kind of launches at the start, um, continuing Black Widow um, from the original Misty run. Um, but again, her, her content is very swiftly kind of edged out. Um, and it's kind of interesting when you look at the adverts for the mergers in both comics, actually, that the Tammy one is very keen on kind of saying, you're, you know, nothing will really change. Um, you, you can still see Bella and all your favourites and all the rest of it. And the Misty one is a bit more circumspect about that. So, yeah, Misty and, and her content, I think, is not a great match for Tammy and very swiftly sort of got sidelined. But it also did that weird thing that British comics sometimes did, that even after they were gone, they would still be an annual or a summer special would come out occasionally. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the annuals continued up to 1986. Um, and there was a brief revival for a Best of Misty Monthly, um, also in the 80s. I think there's eight issues of that. 
And actually, a lot of European reprints and things like that, she pops up in a comic called Vanessa in Germany. Um, there's a French-Canadian Misty that ran for a while. There's some collected editions that appear in France. But so, yes, gone but not forgotten, perhaps, is the is the tone. I, I'm just fascinated the idea that the annuals would still come out. We talked about the short-lived horror comic Scream as well, and that had the same when yeah. the you know when industrial action basically cancelled the comic, but the annuals would continue. Yeah, and I think the fan base for Misty, I've been told by all the people I spoke to, was you know was absolutely obsessive and committed and dedicated. Um, so I think the annuals probably had a very good market for you know um, well-meaning relatives buying them for their their favourite um, nieces and nephews and daughters and grandchildren for Christmas and so on. Um, I mean, as as a comic, it certainly didn't fold through lack of popularity. I think it was just a victim of the. Um, insanely high targets um, for sales that were being set for titles then. Yes, I know. I mean, I was reading, I think, Pat Mills's introduction to the first uh, Treasury of British Comics collection of Misty, and he talked about figures of 170,000, I think, mm. per week, yeah. um, which are astonishing figures now, but then were probably not quite up to scratch. No, I mean, I think that was on launch as well, that 170,000. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's you know it's um, m- many of them are circling around the two hundred thousand mark, um, but yeah, are often not really deemed enough. Um, I've had some quite interesting chats with Wilf Prigmore, um, who was a, a part time um, part of the, the creative team for Misty and edited it very briefly at the beginning, who also told me that you know the. The financial structure of, of IPC or Fleetway was such that there was a lot of pressure on the comics to bring in a great deal of, of money to kind of prop up um, a vast middle management structure, as he described it. Um, and all these titles, all these weekly issues were effectively designated as individual what he called cost centers. Um, so they had to make money every week consistently. It wasn't like you could merge all the misty annuals and specials and everything else into one thing. It was each individual product had to hit a particular target. And if you dipped for too long, then you got cut. Yeah, and that's what happened, I guess. Um, yeah. and you, you've mentioned, obviously, the creation of Misty. If we go back to the start, uh, Pat Mills, obviously Uncle Pat, the godfather of British comics, was there as part of the creative team. Wilf Prigmore is not a name that I've sort of discussed on this podcast before or brought up before. He he was one of the main editors of Misty through the through its creation, I think. Yeah, at its start, certainly. So, I mean, as, as I understand it, and I've spoken to, to Pat extensively, and Pat's wonderful, he's yeah, really generous with his time. Um, and I've spoken to, he put me in touch with um, David Roach, a 2000 AD artist. David put me in touch with Wilf Prigmore. Wilf Prigmore put me in touch with the rest of the editorial team um, who were still surviving at, at that point. This is a few years ago. Um, spoken to quite a few people about the start of it. Um, the story is slightly misty and murky, um, as these things generally are. Um, I think um, what we can, what we can be sure of is absolutely that Pat was really keen to launch a, um, a horror comic kind of taking his 2000 AD sort of model, um, basing it very much on his kind of around his launch story, Moonchild, which is a sort of rewritten adaptation of Carrie, um, but, you know, toned down, changed for a teenage audience. And so he had this idea for a horror comic for girls that was going to deliver that, those sorts of models, that was going to adapt sort of longer form Stephen King stories, Flowers in the Attic, that sort of creepy psychological type of horror that was really popular in the late 70s. 
I think where that hit a snag was that the um, sort of managerial staff, John Sanders, John Purdy, were very keen to not have a horror comic. They wanted something that was going to compete with DC Thompson's Spellbound. Um, so more of a mystery, creepy, super, you know, edging into the supernatural, but perhaps a bit more, less gritty and dirty and more kind of... Um, uh, sort of terror-ridden and uncanny and so on. Um, and so Wilf was very much brought on board um, to deliver a mystery comic, um, which I think was likely led by those sorts of commercial issues to compete with that. Um, yeah, and so the comic that they kind of came up with, um, with a lot of input from um, the art editor, Jack Cunningham, and the who would, the guy who would go on to be the main editor and writer for it, Malcolm Shaw, um, who was just wrapping up Princess Tina at the time, um, but was then slated to come on board for this. Uh, was was basically Misty kind of bringing in this ethereal host type figure, um, toning down perhaps a lot of the more brutal horror stories with with bad endings, although many many still remained. Um, yeah, and delivering something that was a real sort of collaborative um, effort, I think. It's fantastic. I mean, it's fascinating that you were able to speak to some of the creative team. I mean, obviously Malcolm Shaw, sadly, he died tragically young. I think, didn't he? Were you... yeah, at the end of forties, yeah. Yeah. As we said, Misty is one of those books that, uh, or one of those comics that perhaps hasn't been talked about a great deal. You know, when I went to look at some of my comic reference books, mm. Misty usually only gets a paragraph or something like that. I think only before your book, possibly Roger Sabin and his uh, book talks about it. And even then he talk, talks about it being a sort of um, forgotten literature of mm. girls' comics. Yeah, I mean, I think girls' comics in general in histories of the medium have been quite sidelined. Um, there's, I mean, there's a number of scholars that now doing, doing really excellent research on them who predate me as well, people like Mel Gibson, um, not that one, um, <laughs> a, a different Dr. Melanie Gibson, um, Joan Ormerod, um, as you say, Roger, um, James Chapman, you know, who, who are writing great books looking at, at British British comics, but often the girls' comics do kind of get get somewhat sidelined. Um, I say Mel and Joan are looking particularly at the romance comics and the girls, the traditional comics more generally. But yeah, girls' comics, I think of, although um, they, you know, were so popular at the time and outsold the boys' comics um, in many respects, and arguably, I may be biased, but had, you know, superior storytelling, um, fantastic artwork and so on, um, have not often been deemed worthy of collecting or critical attention or academic attention. Um, so books on British girls' comics are quite slim, which is another reason I really wanted to write this one. Um, I mean, one of the other books that springs to mind is Mel Gibson's Remembered Reading, but this is all about, due to the difficulty of actually getting hold of the girls' comics themselves, it's all about um, readers' memories of girls' comics, You know, which, again, I find fascinating that these Texts were so hard to get hold of um, that Mel sort of had to change her project and talk instead about the use and the memories that people had of them. Does the, I mean, uh, just on a side note, does the University of Bournemouth have a complete set of Misty now? <laughs> Uh, well, it does now, actually. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you mentioned Malcolm Shaw just now. And obviously, I wasn't able to, to, to talk to Malcolm. It's been a long time. But I was able to talk to his um, his widow, Brenda Ellis, um, who I went to visit and had a long chat with. And she remembered Malcolm's work on Misty really well, because it was at the time um, that he was... Um, coming to the end of working full-time for Fleetway and they moved out to Spain and so on. And it was one of his, he was absolutely committed to Misty. Um, she said he thought it was such a good comic. He was, you know, he was really immersed in it. Um, and she gave me um, the complete bound set of Misty that he had <clears throat> liberated from Fleetway uh, when he left. And I, after much soul searching, donated it to Bournemouth University Library where anyone can indeed read it. Oh, fantastic. Wow. <laughs> 
I like the journey that that bound copy has been on as well. <laughs> Fantastic. I, yeah, I, I think it's great that it's in the University Library now. I mean, there's a few places because it's I think, you know, accessing these comics, as I've just mentioned, can be quite difficult. I mean, if you're in London, great. You can go to the British Library. Um, obviously not at the moment. But, you know, even their collection is missing some some elements. Um, there's a brilliant collection of girls comics called Femrabilia up at Liverpool John Moores University. Um, they've got loads of stuff and they've created a really brilliant archive. And obviously now we have the, these bits down at Bournemouth. Um, so, yeah, it's you know, it's. It's hard to identify where these things are, but there are little pockets of them um, popping up. And the other thing I know from your research that's hard to identify is some of the other creators involved in actually telling the stories of Misty and drawing the stories of Misty. And I know in your book you've got uh, chapters on anonymous authors and astonishing artists, um, because a lot of these names were, I think, lost to the mists of time until some of your researchers found them again. Yeah, and I can't take credit for uncovering the artist's names. Um, I'm going to give all the credit for that entirely to David Roach, um, who is not only a wonderful artist in his own right, but is a fantastic historian of girls' comics, um, and who Pat and me introduced me to, and who very generously presented me with his notes on the entire run of Misty, because David has been identifying and annotating these British girls' comics for a really long time. So that was a fantastic boon for me, and I swiftly asked his permission to make it all open access and put it online. But so the artists, if you have the skill of someone like David, you know, are identifiable. Um, I'm less good at identifying art, I will be honest. Um, but the writers, oh man, so hard to identify. And, you know, lucky enough to speak to some of these people. And obviously Pat remembers what he wrote for Misty. Wilf remembered what he wrote for Misty. Wilf was able to tell me a bit more about the types of stories that people wrote. Um, so Misty's sub-editor, someone I haven't mentioned yet, was a man called Bill Harrington. Um, whose speciality was very much kind of period stories. Um, he wrote a story called Waifs of the Wigmaker and Tammy um, and another, a few more like that. So Will's argument was very much if they're kind of those historical stories set in the past, chances are they're a, they're a Harrington, basically. Um, and that, of course, him and Malcolm Shaw as the editorial team would have written a couple of stories every week, really, just to keep their hand in and, and fill the comic, as well as the serials. And Malcolm Shaw's interest, according to um, um, his, his widow Brenda, very much to do with kind of sci-fi mythology, um, you know, look, weaving those kind of things together, um, taking them as a sort of jumping off point. So we can hazard a guess at some of the writers, but they will only ever be guesses, I think. They will only ever be educated guesses. And you can never be quite sure that someone isn't just writing in a different style for that week and saying, hey, we need a period story. You know, so I'm more hesitant to kind of identify the, the writers, I guess. And I know, I mean, there's a couple of myths that I was sort of aware of about comics from this era. One was that, that you know, like the Spanish or Italian artists were cheaper, whereas actually David Roach, I think, has refuted that and said they were just better and quicker and better yeah. able to do, you know, meet the demands of weekly comics. But the other one was this idea that Misty in particular and some of the other girls' comics were all produced exclusively by men. But in your, I know from your book, you've identified some of the, the women who wrote stories, like Alison Christie, uh, Maureen Spurgeon, Kitty Punchard, people like this, who, again, names I'd never heard of. And I was, you know, 
you saw, I wanted to hear, in a way, you want to learn more about their stories. It's a shame that they're lost to the mists of time as well. I know it's you know it's it's such a shame we've lost so many of these people and these creators um, because yeah it's like those tantalising bits of information right where I've got the names and I know a little bit about them um, but not so much I mean I know that Maureen Spurgeon I think was more responsible for creating things like the free gifts and the kind of features um, Wilf Prignall told me anecdotally she was kind of fondly known as the White Witch she was very right. Fortune telling and things like that. So the Wheel of Fortune uh, free giveaway was hers. The kind of features more so in the annuals um, on kind of spookiness and, you know, the occulty things would have been hers. Kitty Punchard, I think, was more a writer of text stories. Um, Again, I got contacted by her um, daughter, I think it was, um, just after posting some stuff on some blogs and saying, my mum said she used to write for Misty. You know, that's her, but she's sadly no longer, no longer with us either. And Alison Christie's work, um, I don't think has been identified on Misty. I don't think we know which which stories she wrote either. Um, but female artists as well. Maria Barrera is someone I haven't mentioned, um, one of the Spanish artists. Um, and again, I was contacted by her son after posting some stuff on, on Facebook. Um, so I conducted a kind of at distance interview of Maria, um, who's, who's still alive and living in Barcelona and in her um, late 80s, I think now. And she told me a great deal of stuff about her kind of technique um, and her her kind of journey through the Spanish art world um, as a kind of, you know, young young girl kind of working at a time when, again, a lot of the artists were, were primarily male. Um, so I think from talking to the, I mean, the editorial team of Misty, obviously all male, um, I think the... The staff working day to day on those comics, primarily male. I think there there was a feeling that it was a bit of a boys' club going on, but actually there are female creators to be to be uncovered um, that have been sort of you know perhaps not as as well remembered and noted. And perhaps the the female creator, I suppose, most well known for association with Misty is, of course, the sort of cover artist, the yeah. person who came up with the sort of image of Misty herself, uh, Shirley Bellwood. Mm. Um, again, sadly, no longer with us. And I know you were due to interview her with Pat Mills at an event at the British Library. Was yeah. that 2014, I think it was supposed to be? Yeah, yeah, thereabouts. Yeah, that was organised as part of Comica Festival by Paul Gravett, another brilliant British comics historian. And yeah, sadly, Shirley was too ill to travel at the other time. It would have been her first appearance, I think, talking about her comics work, um, because although she was a established comics artist and actually she came to Misty I believe she was recommended by either Norman Worker or Jack Cunningham um, so she'd worked with them on previous titles on the romance titles um, but she was also a classical painter and portraitist and very well respected in you know in that field um, in that medium so her comics work perhaps was less of a, a focus for her I think um, and so she, you know she this would have been the first time that she spoke about it but sadly she was too ill too ill to travel again after she died i went to interview um friends and neighbors of hers who were the, who were the ones who were supposed to be coming with her to london so i found out some really great stuff and saw a lot of her old her old work um but you're absolutely right that she defined the image um of misty in many ways she based it as i'm sure many people know on on herself um she was a very kind of striking vampish looking woman and yeah this was the the drawings that she did for the inside cover of the comic of which she produced quite a few although many were kind of chopped and changed and so we got this kind of poetic welcome from misty herself every week 
written by the editor, but put in kind of hand calligraphy by Jack Cunningham, the art editor, and accompanied by these beautiful sort of line and dot work pen and ink drawings by Shirley Bellward um, that were then quite often recolored and put onto the cover. Um, and as a portraitist, she also did um, a number of painted portraits of Misty that were either posters um, in the summer specials, covers for the annuals, um, yeah, and so forth. Yes. I mean, she's astonishing. And you say the pictures you've included in your book, there's a photograph of the young Shirley Bellwood and there's a couple of her sort of self-portraits. Yeah. As you say, an astonishing looking woman, but also an astonishing artist, artist and portrait artist. Yeah, I think so. I think she captures character so well. And I think that was one thing I, that I and many other readers loved about Misty herself, the character, was that she's not just a kind of pretty looking woman. She's got a real sort of power about her. She's got an intensity. You know, she looks um, formidable, I guess, in, in many respects, as well as ethereal. Yes, I mean, she's a fantastic horror host for the comic and appears on uh, the front cover of, I think, all of the, or most, three of the um, treasury collections that we've so far had of Misty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, wonderful stuff. And, of course, you mentioned making your database mm. of the uh, story credits for Misty available because that's all online now. It's all on your website. Yeah, absolutely. So it's at juliarang.com slash Misty. Um, I mean, really, that was a... I wanted to make as many, as many of my notes and material as poss- available as possible. I mean, academic publishing generally uh, is a uh, is, is a strange game because you don't get any money and people don't necessarily read what you're putting out. Um, but also there's a big, you know, I, I, I feel strongly that as much information as possible should be open access, should be free for all. Um, and one way you kind of can support that in academic publishing is by making all your supporting material, so interviews, notes, all this, all this data available um and in the hope that it will be useful to other people but what i also wanted to do was create something that would be useful to misty fans um like myself who might be searching for a story that they have remembered that was about a mirror and something else so i created this um i say i with a great deal of help um i kind of um bodged my story summaries that I've been taking of all the contents of each issue um, into a table that I um, was very kindly allowed to use by a guy called Chris Lilliman, who'd originally created a website called mistycomic.co.uk that had a lot of stories, a lot of table um, sorry, they had a big kind of table set up of all the different stories, but very little other content about the stories themselves due to the difficulties of finding them. So Chris allowed me to use his template and I pasted my stories summers in. I started to add in the other information. I got the artist names from David Roach and then I just started adding in my writers. And then my brother very kindly um, told me that my data was bad data in its word type form and needed to be in you know a, a much better format and helped me put it into something searchable online. So it is searchable by artist name, by random keyword and so on. So you can use it to find all the stories by Sidri Monez, um, you know, with artwork by him or all the stories that are about mirrors or whatever, really. Fantastic. So if anybody else is looking for that elusive story that terrified them when they were younger, um, now there's a place where you can find them. And story credits as well, where they exist, where we've been, you've been able to identify them, or David Roach has identified the artists. Yeah, and if anyone knows any more, please tell me. <laughs> it's, yes. it's very much a work in progress. Um, Fill in more... the gaps if you can. Absolutely, yeah. So Julia, let's turn to your book itself, which I think was published, am I right, last year? That's right, yeah, end of last year. 2019. So I'm going to ask you, you know, it's um, 
Gothic for Girls, Misty and British Comics. So we start with a definition, I guess. I mean, some of us will think we know Gothic if we see it in film and television. But in terms of literature, how would you define Gothic? Oh, it's such a good question. How long have you got? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, you're not far wrong with you know it when you see it, I suppose. Um, I mean, Gothic is so wide-ranging. You know, it's... it's, um, it's a concept that kind of allows us to connect texts that are as far removed as kind of American, uh, so as, as kind of Castle of Otranto in the earliest kind of classic creeping castle-ridden Gothic with something like, I don't know, American Horror Story um, or kind of modern stuff today. So critics have tried to define Gothic for quite some time um, from the earliest kind of classic critics and writers, people like Ellen Moores or H.P. Lovecraft, um, who've kind of fallen back on the idea that Gothic has something to do with fear. Um, which sounds basic but you know is is true but also potentially problematic I mean what scares you might not scare me and so perhaps writers have then focused on the idea that the textual presence of fear is what we might talk about so characters who are scared or experiencing difficult situations um, and Radcliffe the famous gothic writer then separates concepts of fear into um, ideas um, of terror and horror um, for Radcliffe terror is like the the unseen um, the moment where we're kind of our senses are reaching out into the dark because we think we might have heard a noise that's terror um, and horror the kind of dramatic repulsive moment where the terrifying thing behind the curtain jumps out so fear has become a key component in defining gothic um and beyond that, it's kind of hard to identify Gothic without resorting to what the scholar Catherine Spooner calls the Gothic shopping list, uh, which is a great kind of phrase that I really like. You know, we go, well, you know, castles, hauntings, ghosts, zombies, check. But even those things change over time. Early Gothic stories had very little to do with monsters, um, you know, until the kind of revolution of um, Frankenstein and Dracula and so on. Um, so the most successful definitions of Gothic are those that are wide enough to work across different eras of media. For me, I guess Gothic is kind of a contradiction. Um, It pulls in two directions simultaneously. So it gives us kind of shocking, transgressive and subversive themes and ideas. Um, But ultimately, you can read it as really conservative because good will generally win out and evil is punished. Um, We could talk about the kind of fear and attraction side of Gothic in the same sort of way. It repels us, but it attracts us simultaneously. We keep turning the page despite ourselves. Um, so Gothic for me, I guess, is a, a mode of writing um, or creation that draws on fear. It's disturbing and it's appealing at the same time. It deals with kind of big themes like um, the sense of the uncanny, monstrosity, otherness, indifference. And it's often used as a kind of disruptive or distorting style. And yeah, I think it's built on confrontations between opposing ideas like Radcliffe's terror and horror. It oscillates between those two things, the terror of what's coming and the horror of its reveal. So it contains for me a sort of inner conflict that's characterised by ambivalence and uncertainty. Okay, and you that's fascinating. You mentioned, you know, the distinction between terror and horror mm. um, and how they brought that, in, I suppose, into a comic for girls. Uh, or predominantly aimed at girls there were certainly you know there were boys reading it as well we know from the letters pages but this this idea that you know it wasn't going to be the horrific the actual confrontation with horror it would be the creeping terror or even I guess as they phrased it for Misty obviously from the title the mystery comic aspect. Yeah absolutely and I think comics were you know a great medium to do both terror and horror actually because you kind of have all these 
this kind of partial partial narrative going on on the comics page. So the gutter is a great space to kind of hide terror, you know, to have characters kind of looking off to see what might be happening and to build that. Um, whereas the dramatic final page turn that I've already mentioned that can give us a kind of final horrifying image, you know, so comics again lend themselves to kind of grotesquery and, and kind of overdrawn and excess there. I mean, Misty absolutely did oscillate between the two, but generally it did lean absolutely towards terror in its stories, the unshown kind of threat. Um, I did some analysis of the issues and we're looking at about sort of 78% of stories that revolve around something unseen, um, whereas only about 22% will horrify us with this sort of um, final shocking image of a kind of, I don't know, a monstrous bug or a deformity um, or, or something like that. So, it, you know, it did kind of draw on both and it did um, threaten us with both these things. Um, but, yeah, I think the sort of supernatural mystery comic that um, Fleetwood were trying to put out was very much focused on the kind of the unknown, the mystery. Um, and terror certainly lends itself to that very nicely. And I know, from again, from Pat Mills's introduction that he thought at times Misty pulled its punches a bit. And there's a story you analyse in your book uh, from Misty, one of the shorter sort of, you know, one-off stories um, involving a creepy spider, um, where I think the ending was changed somewhat to tone it down. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's a Pat Mills story um, that he originally scripted called The Banana King, um, which became Red Knee White Terror in the that's first it, yes. Year. Yeah, and I was I was lucky enough to get hold of the script that he'd originally written for it. And yeah, in the original incarnation, it's very much a story with a malevolent, creepy antagonist, this guy selling um, bananas in the local market. And our heroine goes and buys some and takes them home. And this enormous hairy spider creeps out of the bag. And most of the story is to do with it following her around the house while she doesn't notice. And at the end of it, um, as originally scripted, it was there was going to be a return to the to the kind of marketplace. The heroine was going to die. There was a return to the marketplace, and the you know the banana king, the guy selling the bananas, was summoning all these spiders back to back to him, uh, which is obviously quite a terrifying thing. Um, as originally as as actually, it actually published, um, we have a similar kind of setup. She buys the bananas. The spider creeps out in the house, and then she. Um, she gets in the bath and the spider kind of follows her in and she's like oh it's on my hair and then she realizes it's just a toy spider that her brother has thrown in to to trick her um although it does end on a slightly unreassuring note because you can still see this real spider creeping off in the in the corner um so yeah it's i think it's art by john richardson and it's you know it's got a pretty gruesome realistic hairy spider but again when you look at pat's script it's full of demands for a really disgusting hairy spider that should be really creepy and visceral and yeah and so on so that one definitely got got toned down in the way you suggest and yes um perhaps was going for the horror ending but stayed with the terror ending i suppose exactly that yeah, yeah. That still that. and um gothic archetypes crop up in misty i guess uh i know in your other book you cover particular two of the archetypes the zombie and the vampire there are vampire stories there's the third volume from the treasury is is predominantly sort of wolf-based stories do they crop up quite frequently in misty the archetypes yeah i mean i'd say less than you might expect to be honest um again i did some kind of analysis of a random sample um and i found about 39 percent of the misty stories have got some sort of archetype in um, it's just to give you some balance. Um, again, looking at a random issue of Scream, um, you're on about 71% of the stories, and a EC Comics about 50-50 for whether archetypes are there or not. 
So when, you know, I say perhaps a bit less than you might expect in the Misty stories. When they do turn up, there are definitely three main types. Ghosts, vampires and witches are the primary ones that will appear. But interestingly, when when they are used, um, they're often kind of subverted in some way. So rather than a kind of terrifying antagonist ghost who's haunting our, you know, noble heroine or whatever, ghosts actually are often either a helper of the protagonist or in quite a common story structure, the protagonist will discover at the end of the tale that they themselves are a ghost. Um, So they will be uncannily drawn to a house or a place or something like that. And ultimately they will discover that actually they are the ghost that haunts it. Similarly, vampires um, mostly are the antagonists and the villains of the piece, but that's often undermined. They're often like mocked um, or the vampire themselves, the, 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 the antagonist will seem to be a vampire, but then it will turn out actually it's not really a vampire, it's someone pretending. And those stories often end quite positively um, with our heroine winning out. And witches, yeah, pop up a lot, as you might expect, not just in the main stories, but actually also in Misty's two comedy series, which I haven't really mentioned yet, um, Misty and Wendy the Witch, um, which were kind of one-page or shorter comedy strips about unlucky or hapless witches um, whose spells backfire on themselves, drawn much more in a traditional Beano-esque British comic style. Um, but witches also pop up in more serious tales. But again, even in three quarters of those witch tales, the witches are made sympathetic in some way, or they are the victims of persecution or, some, or something along those lines. And there are some other archetypes in Misty, you know, as you say, werewolves and zombies and so on, but they appear a lot less. So it's interesting. We went with the wolf theme for the Third Rebellion collection, really, because I would have said they were they were not particularly well represented as a whole. And that's that's the uh, is it wolf child or wolf girl, I think, is the lead story. Yes. Yeah. I mean, not really about werewolves, to be honest, about a girl who um, was raised by wolves and kind of never feels she fits in in human society so runs away to join the wolf pack and also finds she doesn't really fit in there so it's sort of a typical oscillation as she bounces back and forth between human society and the wolf pack never really feeling like she belongs in either place and then going back to the vampire i was fascinated by the story where there is a vampire but he has a sort of fairly mundane job as a rat catcher you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah that's kind of what i mean about them being ro- uh, mocked you know that story ends in saying yes the rats were delicious delicious uh, you know kind of it's sort of this i don't know high camp gothic sort of scene but you know again he's talking about this quite mundane task uh yeah there's another vampire story where one's killed with a choc ice stick you know they, uh, another one where i think this is a vampire one uh, where there's it turns out to be some property developers acting as vampires, trying to keep kids off their land. You know, so the vampires are played around with quite a lot more. Those meddling kids again. <laughs> Those pesky kids, exactly. And there's also a story in the um, Jordi Badia Romero collection, which is a lovely hardback collection. I think a story called Bookworm, um, yeah. which is fascinating in a way because the, the central character wants to magic herself into her favourite book. But as you say, it gets one of those sort of poetic twists at the end yeah. when she gets the spell right but the book wrong and ends up in the pages of Dracula. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah what a twist. Um, you've mentioned you know, some of the themes of Gothic um, and these bits that I've taken from your book, like that there's maybe a haunting, there is something hidden, the crypt, and then there's the excess uh, as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Misty Comics and how they use some of those themes, particularly as we know we talk about the artwork and the panel layouts and things like that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I suppose I selected those three themes in my first book because I was quite interested in concepts that could be applied to not just the story content, like haunting being about ghosts, but also the kind of way that comics pages work, um, which kind of seemed to me that, you know, on comics, you quite often get repetition or echoing of a particular panel layout or page layout. And to me, that feels like a kind of haunting. Um, so I was quite interested in kind of, you know, using concepts like that. Again, the idea of the hidden things, the crypt, not just to do a story content, but also to do with what happens between panels, you know, the bit that we're not shown, but we, the events that we know must have happened as we, as we kind of proceed through the story that we have to provide ourselves. Um, and the idea of excess, which I think most obviously on Misty takes the form of these wildly elaborate page layouts with all these different types of jagged edges and sharp angles and borderless panels and so on. So yeah, in Misty, I mean, haunting certainly appears in the stories explicitly through um, you know, the ghost characters that I've already mentioned. But I think perhaps structurally, you could kind of say that there's a sort of echoing going on in the types of stories that it offers. Um, and on the one hand, it has um, serials that are very... Um, similar to those told in other girls' comics, um, where a protagonist will perhaps have to overcome some mystery or some aspect of themselves and sort of grow and become stronger because of that. But on the other hand, it also, ha but that's kind of um, enhanced with sort of a spooky, the problem will be spooky in nature. Um, but Misty also has these single one-shot stories um, that kind of repeat over and over again this same pattern, a sort of cautionary tale where a protagonist will either be bad to the bone or make some small error and do something wrong, and then there will be a shock poetic justice sort of ending. Um, so shoplifters will be turned into shop dummies. Um, in the early issues, um, Kathy steals a kind of moodstone ring and it sucks all the colour out of her world. You know, there's these kind of poetic justice sort of things. I think, again, the ideas of the hidden in Misty, I mean, in comics, as I say, the reader has to work so hard, the eyes led through the page, but there's so much to decode and to figure out what's going on. And Misty was quite good at using that to kind of make us look in the background of panels to see what's happening and to see threats. Um, there's a great story called Shadow of a Doubt, where a character becomes aware that all the shadows in her town are um, sentient and plotting against all the people there and she's kind of confronted by her own shadow at some dramatic point in the story and kind of says we're all going to get you um, and then as the story ends you can just see these horrifying shadows kind of looming over people um, in the in the back of the final panel um, so the hidden kind of stuff is is certainly there in Misty and also in the kind of the buried events that we've already sort of mentioned that idea that reliance on terror rather than horror um, that idea of the kind of implied the unshown threat and certainly, I think most prominently, the idea of of excess on the page, um, because the misty page layouts were just crazy, <laughs> more so than any other girls' comic I have seen today. Um, and in many respects, we could kind of say that Misty was a competitor or a reaction to DC Thompson's Spellbound, but it drew so much on the kind of ornate and um, impactful layouts of something like 2000 AD, led by Doug Church. But I would say probably pushed it even further. Um, I was lucky enough to get a little bit of money for a research project on the page layouts. And I worked with a brilliant scholar called Paul Fisher Davis, who identified and, and selected a kind of random selection of misty issues. We looked at 10 issues and tagged all the features of page layouts on them. And what we found was that 
every single page of Misty has something weird going on. There's no three by three grits, you know, and even if there are something that looks quite horizontal and irregular, the panel borders are broken or, you know, many images will be unenclosed. You know, the pages are consistently transgressive. It's quite hard to fit a number of the pages into any sort of notion of of even tiering, um, you know, of having kind of distinct horizontal rows going across them. Panel borders are um, wildly varied, you know, sharp angles, jagged edges, um, and so on, borderless panels, circular inset panels, you know, it just, it kind of goes on and on. And of course, many of the stories start with really large kind of splash panels as well in a similar style to 2000 AD. So Misty for me, um, visually is a absolute treat of excess. You know, the pages are are absolutely wonderful and it's a credit to all the artists who we've already spoken about how great they were that they keep their storytelling so clear throughout that kind of variety i think and also to its um editorial team um because one thing i was trying to find out when, when i started doing this little research project on the page layouts what i was hoping to do was to try and identify if particular artists had a particular layout style so in the same way as david roach identified their you know their art from the start drew and i was hoping for a particular layout style um i kind of had to abandon that quest because when i interviewed jack cunningham the art editor he told me that actually he tweaked a lot of pages he would erase borders to try and give a sense of movement he would um, even manipulate the size of panels by copying and expanding them to try and make things you know fall differently on a page um, not with all the artist's work, because I also interviewed people like Isidre Monez, who kind of said my work appeared as I as it was shown. But there was certainly a lot of editorial playing, I think, as well, to make things look in a, in a house style, I guess, in a style of that comic. And certainly scripts were annotated to try and reflect that as well, make this panel big and, and so on. Oh, OK. I mean, I haven't read enough girls' comics, but my again, my sort of... Uh, preconceived wisdom was that they were very sort of traditional three by three panel layouts until Misty. I think that's the idea we have. But and you confirm that sort of seems to be the case. That was the house style. Yeah, I mean it's it, it depends on the comic. I would say DC Thompson Spellbound. Um, the page layouts are much more conservative. It's not to say they're all grid layouts by any means, but they are they are much more conservative. And um, but girls' comics more generally. I mean the art was was fantastic. You know and. I don't think any of them. I, I would say I don't think they met. They went as far as Misty, but I'm I'm no expert on all girls' comics by by any means. You know, my, my focus has been primarily Misty, and I certainly know that a lot of them, particularly kind of John Armstrong's sports stories and things like that. You know, there's brilliant kind of splash pages of kind of diving scenes and stuff. You know, what that are really, yeah, you know, really do break the rules of, of the page. So I think that was going on in a lot of comics. Now, 2000 AD, led by Pat and its art editor, Doug Church, absolutely did push that much, much further, you know. And the one thing that I think they did was to get that kind of extra page in, um, extra story length and get a big kind of splash page in at the start, a big opening panel or something like that. And that was carried through into Misty. Um, So it drew from a lot of places, I think. You've also, of course, your book is called Gothic for Girls. And in the book, you sort of you make your argument, you set out your case for this concept of Gothic for Girls. Could you tell us a little bit about that as it applies to Misty particularly? Yeah, I suppose um, it wasn't the book I was intending to write at the start. (laughs) And as a book, it 
it kind of perhaps almost pushes two things together. Um, on the one hand, it's a cultural history of Misty and all this stuff that I've uncovered. And on the other hand, it's very much an investigation of what this particular subgenre of Gothic looked like and whether it has resonance and relevance today. And I think it does. I suppose what I was struck by when I looked at Misty was how much of it was about how much, of the, how much of the supernatural and spooky story content could be mapped onto perhaps issues of puberty? Um, so in the serials, I'm talking about girls who are overcoming spooky powers, unwanted powers, or a part of themselves, um, or you know, find out something about themselves that changes the way they think about themselves, or like Wolf Girl, where we mentioned, can't control their animal-type urges or whatever. So what I kind of found was that a lot of these stories were about young female protagonists, because they're all about young female protagonists, right, um, who experience sort of isolation, perhaps, loneliness, transformation, again, very much linked to ideas of puberty, um, and kind of a destabilizing of their own identity, you know, supernatural and spooky events that, sh that shake and shape the way they look at themselves, whilst also trying to um, overcome this. And so I kind of looked at a lot of other children's gothic and female gothic works and tried to kind of use this to construct this definition of gothic for the girls. And my argument was really that this is a, a, over, a largely overlooked and under-theorised subgenre, although it appears over and over again for, in text for young female readers uh, building up to the cusp of the millennium. And what we're talking about is a kind of magical realist world, uh, so where supernatural things can and do happen but are unexpected focusing on a young female protagonist who's usually isolated or trapped in some way and the narrative kind of enacts their awakening to this and their own magical potential as they kind of fight against things like temptation or transgression there's often a clear moral lesson there's often kind of traditional fairy tale sins in the misty stories greed and pride and laziness which are common sources of conflict so the stories become perhaps a bit about personal responsibility and lessons in that as these female protagonists try to negotiate the traps that are set by magical items or other antagonists or curses or other dangers um, and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fail and self-control or self-acceptance seems to be the kind of means of escape so for me this this kind of genre of gothic for girls sort of constructs and acknowledges girlhood as a uncanny experience and the kind of liminal moment I mean, that's a very brief summary. And again, it's a definition that, you know, it might not stand up. But I suppose the other thing I really wanted to do was to try and draw attention to the links between gothic and girlhood beyond the kind of superficial and the sexualized. Because the one thing I find really upsetting is when I Google gothic for girls online, what I get is a load of tutorials on how to make myself look like a beautiful goth girl, where to buy beautiful goth clothes, and so on. Uh, and I think there's probably, you know... Young female, young, young female readers, I think, deserve a bit more than that um, and, and have been given that for quite some time. Yes, and they deserve a uh, critical appraisal of, of a comic like Misty and other girls' comics. And thank goodness you've done one at last. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I was just going to say, it builds very... We could also argue that the tastes of those young female audiences have quite often been marginalised and excluded. And certainly other scholars, um, better scholars than me, um, Catherine Spooner, Chloe Buckley, Joseph Crawford, have drawn attention to the idea that the Gothic tradition has often been perceived as quite serious and quite weighty. 
And the types of gothic that young girls like, um, whether from ruby gloom to twilight to whatever, are quite often ignored and marginalised. And that situation becomes even more apparent with British comics, because as we mentioned at the start, the comics were can be so hard to obtain, they weren't properly stored, they weren't valued. They were given away or destroyed by collectors, um, you know, and David Roach has a horrifying story of a piece of original Shirley Bellwood misty art being found used as a cutting board in a workshop. So these these artifacts haven't always been, you know, respected or treated and the voices of young girls haven't always been heard about them and what they like. Yes, I was looking up, uh, doing a bit more research yesterday, and I found, I think you've mentioned Paul Gravette already, I found, I think, on his website, the piece, possibly the only surviving piece of Misty Artwork, which, as you say, was just being used as a cutting board, and David Roach has rescued it and restored it, and he, he he probably has the only piece of Shirley Bellwood artwork from Misty, which is astonishing. We do hear these stories about how bad, you know, the badly the original artwork was treated, and here we have an actual example of it. Yeah, if you look at it, and you're right, it's, it is on Paul's website. Um, you can see that the whole just the whole top left corner has been cut out, you know, um, and that's the bit that David has, has yeah we re- completed. Yeah. It's astonishing, isn't it? Um, are there other, you know, other comics that you would recommend as sort of, um, apart from Misty and Spellbound, as sort of touching on your Gothic for girls? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm dipping into the the, the wider. I'm investigating the wider history of British comics at the moment. Anyway, um, I mean, Ginty is obviously another great one for for people to read. Um, Jenny Scott has a fantastic blog um, all about Ginty that has loads of story summaries, scanned pages, and so on. You know, that touched very much on more kind of some kind of dystopian serials. Um, more kind of science fictiony sort of stuff, perhaps, but certainly told similar stories in many respects of you know of, of female protagonists kind of trying to find their way. I mean, in terms of gothic comics more generally, uh, I suppose you know as, as we mentioned my previous book um, earlier, but my my reading has often tended outside British girls' comics. So you know I've I've kind of um, come to comics through things like like Sandman and Lock and Key and and, and you know more modern incarnations. Hannah Berry's work, um, coming back to British comics creators, um, I find really interesting. Um, Livestock, her most recent one, is kind of a dystopic satire about celebrity and female identity and value and so on. Um, so that's good. But her other, her previous work, like Adam Teen, is very gothic in, in tone, I think, and very focuses on these kind of mystery thrillers and so on. And as you say, you've covered these in your other book, which we will mention again in a moment. We should also mention, of course, you know, there have been misty collections in the past, but now we've got Rebellion and the Treasury of British Comics are starting to put out collections. So there's been four so far. Yep. Um, I think we had... Did we have Moonchild and the Four Faces of Eve who's in the first volume? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And then yeah. the second is The Sentinels and End of the Line, which is a nice creepy London underground story. We've mentioned The Wolf Girl, third volume, and then we get a volume of... One particular artist, Jordi Badia Romero, uh, or Jorge Badia Romero, I think he's sometimes known as, with astonishing, again, lovely black and white. There's some colour pages, but some lovely black and white artwork throughout. And it's some great examples of the individual, almost, as you say, poetic twist uh, or, you know, cautionary tale type stories in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're all great. In, for entirely different reasons, I think you know, Rebellion doing a great job bringing bringing these out. 
Um, I mean, the first two Misty collections, um, I think it would be you'd be really hard pushed to choose between them. But of course, what they do do is focus on these serials um, in the comics. Um, so you have Pat Mills and Malcolm Shaw in the first one, and then the second one entirely Malcolm Shaw as a, as the writer. So that they'll give you a particular view of Misty, I think, um, which is the kind of supernatural mystery as a protagonist tries to find their way through it. I like the third Wolf Girl collection um, because it has, because even though I don't think Wolf Girl is necessarily the strongest story, it has a selection of the one-shot stories in as well. And for me, they, as, as has probably become clear, they were one of the things that really defined Misty. Um, so I quite like that. Um, and then, of course, most recently, the Badia Romero collection. I mean, I just think it looks amazing. You know, it's, it's hardback. It's beautiful. It is. It's a yeah. gorgeous volume, hardback and wonderful artwork. Yeah, and he's such a wonderful artist. Of course, what you don't get is the variety, but you, it has an emphasis on the single stories um, as, as opposed to all the others. Um, there's only one short serial that he drew that's in there, Screaming Point. Um, and there's some repetition from the Wolf Girl collection, uh, like Wolfsbane, but there's some brilliant examples of his work in there. And it's on fantastic high-quality paper, you know, and, yeah, it looks, it looks so lovely. And I should mention that one's got an introduction from David Roach, who we've mentioned several times, and, of course... He's well known for his sort of, uh, as you say, finding out who all the artists were. He's particularly good. He's got a fantastic insight uh, and knowledge of the Spanish artists in particular. Absolutely. And a brilliant book on the Spanish artists as well, Masters of Comic Book Art, yeah. And, of course, he's got his new book out, Masters of British Comic Art, which um, features some Shirley Bellwood art in there uh, and talks about Misty as well. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge volume. I don't know if you've got that one yet. I haven't got that one yet. I've got the Spanish one. I'm assuming it's going to be a similar meaty hardback. It so. is, yes, it is. Big meaty hardback. It's lovely. I mean, if I forced you to choose between the four Treasury volumes so far, say we've got, um, you know, a British comics reader who's interested in Misty but never read it, which one would you hand them first? Who would I hand them first? Tough choice, I know. Tough choice. Number two. I, I love Malcolm Shaw. Joe, you know, I, I was thinking about this for a while, and it's it's it's, a, it's an answer off the top of my head. But I, I think number two, because the Sentinels is is a great unique story about a terrifying parallel world where the Nazis have won World War Two. Um, it descends a bit into to kind of um, circularity towards the end. But end of the line, I also think is a brilliant example of the Misty serial, um, a kind of Victorian workforce trapped underground, and a girl who's um, investigating the disappearance of her father. Um, and I think both of those are, are stunningly drawn as well. But I mean, they are, they're all good. It depends why why you like girls' comics, which one you would prefer. I think because if you want the more traditional girls' comic serial, then I think the first collection is is great as well. Um, and if you want to put your focus more on the single stories, then yeah, the latter two I think would be the ones to go for. So all of them, buy them all. Buy them all. And of course, <laughs> me being a good consumer, I have got them all. Excellent. <laughs> yes. And they're all fantastic. Uh, yeah, great stuff. And while we're talking about introductions and afterwards, I'm going to go back to the first volume because there's two things. I know that Keith Richardson, I mean, you were obviously, you were due to interview Shirley Bellwood in 2014. I know Keith Richardson was quite keen and hopeful that he would be able to get her to do an introduction. And of course, sadly, she died in 2016. So we have Pat Mills does the instruction. And then, of course, you do a short afterward about Shirley Bellwood as well, I've noticed. Yeah, I did. I was really happy to be asked. Um, it was it was great to yeah to rewrite some of the stuff I'd learned about her. I mean, it's, it's only short. It's a brief summary. But it's really great. She's got a presence in there, I think. And, and beautiful, you know, um, the cover for the first one, the beautiful Shirley Bellwood 
uh, painting of Misty was just glorious, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. No, it's fantastic. And I was trying to do all my research, as I say, taking down my comic history books off the shelf, and I turned back to a volume uh, or rather to an issue of Comic Scene, the UK comic magazine, issue one, where it has an article about Misty at 40. Uh, so I was looking at that, and of course that was you as well. Me as well, yeah. I'm cornering the market, man. Yes, you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm really happy to be asked. It was great that Comic Scene decided to do a girls' comics, you know, a women in comics sort of focus. Um, yeah, and they moved on to do a horror comics issue, and I wrote a bit for that as well. Um, yeah, that wasn't about Misty. But, yeah, I mean, I've, I think... Um, I, I got massively immersed in my Misty research, and I think like you do when you discover something so great, you just want to go and tell everybody, um, and that's pretty much what I've been doing. Um, and not even – I'm ashamed to say not even just in research and at conferences. I mean, everyone's so fed up with my Misty papers now. But, you know, I'll, I'll tell you Misty stories at parties and all the rest of it. Uh, you yeah, know, they lend themselves surprisingly well to, hey, and there was this one story. So you're the go-to person for Misty. <laughs> I'd like <laughs> And also, of course, we've got new publications because Rebellion are doing, they've done two now, I think, Misty and Scream specials around about Halloween time. And I think the third one, I think it's the third one this year is coming out, you know, hopefully in October, certainly will be out digitally, I think, in October. Um, Have you had a chance to see those? Yeah, and oh, they're great. Um, Have you seen the cover for the new one coming out in October? It's so beautiful. Yes, I have. I saw it recently, and I will post that on the uh, socials when this episode comes out, because it is glorious, isn't it? It's it's only just been posted online. I'm afraid I can't remember who the artist is off the top of my head, but that new cover is beautiful. Um, I've really enjoyed the new specials. Um, I mean, I think... You know, they're a bit of both mixed up together. Um, One of the things I have really liked about them, actually, is that they've reworked a lot of the older stories to try and make them a bit less gendered um so from memory from the first one like black max became all about a schoolgirl. the dracula files kind of moved to a domestic setting with a female narrator the sentinels opened with a girl and her boyfriend that was hannah berry as well um you know so i quite like that that they were bringing old stuff and kind of um gender flipping it or changing it or updating it in in some way and I thought they looked great, although much more in keeping with the kind of style of British comics today, perhaps an old girls' comics. Uh, I mean, they've got that kind of um, new 2000 AD slick look about them. But, you know, I, I love that as well. So, yeah, I think they're great. I'm really looking forward to this year's one. And have they asked you to write one yet? <laughs> they haven't. <laughs> I don't blame them for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because you have done some of your own comics now as well, I think, haven't you? There's one that features at the start of your book. Yeah, I have. Um, I mean, I, I've, I've really enjoyed the few, I've written three short comics now, and I've really enjoyed the three that I've written. Um, for me, it's been a real joy, joy to write them, but also a really interesting experiment in how um, storytelling works in the comics medium, approaching it from a diff- completely different side rather than as a critic. So I've wrote, and they've all been kind of misty themed in nature perhaps um the first one was a sort of pastiche about um of a misty story style um the second one was this story the haunting of julia round which was kind of the anecdote that i told you at the start of this this interview and the third one most recently appeared in sector 13 the 2000 ad fanzine with some brilliant art by morgan brinksman um and that again was another misty kind of um homage um with a, a misty style um host called una 
yeah, and I've you know I was, I was really I feel really lucky to have the opportunity to write them. I'd love to write something for the Rebellion things, but I think that may not be my my forte as yet. I'm learning, and I produce them at about the rate of one a year, so it's not going to keep me for my day job. <laughs> but research and uh, critical writing about the history of girls' comics possibly is certainly is your forte. Um, and if I turn you back to your book for a moment, you mentioned the haunting. You know. Do you, I've stolen this idea from one of your lecturers, uh, Julia. You know, do you feel like you've had the haunting from the original Mirror Mirror story, and then you've you began your own investigations into the crypt, into the unknown, in order to find out more about Misty and Gothic? Mm, yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. I mean, it has been a really it's it's been a really powerful process, and it, it was so much more than I ever expected. And it be, you know it became the sort of investigative project that I haven't necessarily done a great deal of before. I've done a lot of kind of comics analysis and a lot of critical thought about comics, but digging into that kind of cultural history, tracking down people and so on, speaking to them, yeah, that was that was quite a development for me. Um, as was the kind of quantitative sort of analysis you know the statistical sort of side of things that again is not something i would have done before but is really um possible to do when you've got a corpus of 101 comics you kind of go this is what i'm going to look at you can start to kind of say well yeah this is a really fascinating story about you know mirrors and facial disfiguration and so on but how representative is it of what was actually a misty and you can come to those conclusions so that's been really useful as well and I suppose to complete the sort of metaphor, you've ended up with an excess of comics, presumably, and resources and background material and your own database now that uh, you've put on your website. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm still going. So I'm doing a spellbound database now um, and I do a screen one after that um, with similar story summaries and credits and so on. Um, I've certainly ended up with an abundance of comics and annuals and so on, but that's not a bad thing. As no. any- well, suffice. That's fine. You know, I I like the collection of the completism anyway. So yeah, looking for those those missing misty issues is yeah is a great project for me anyway. Fantastic, Julia. Let me turn you to the Grail page game we play on this podcast, where we imagine all the artwork still survives, and that we've got the unlimited budget uh, of the Mega City Book Club to actually buy it. If we could offer you any of the artwork, and as we've said, possibly from that anecdote, David Roach has the only surviving piece, sadly. But if we could offer you any of the artwork, what would you choose to own? Do you know what? This this is such a great question, and I've been thinking about it. It's made me covetous, and yeah, I wasn't <laughs> expecting. I mean, interestingly, a lot of the things that are iconic for me about Misty, I suppose, don't really exist in any original form. So, like, the covers are often, you know, blown-up panels that have been coloured, right? Yes. Um, I'd say the cover to Misty 27, which also appears on my book, is my favourite Misty cover ever. It's a Shirley Bellwood profile picture of Misty, but it's all coloured in blues and reds and yellows, presumably by Cunningham or Andrews as the art um, editor team. But, you know, that doesn't really exist as an original art, right? And there's some other amazing covers along similar lines, like Mario Capaldi's cover to 51, which is taken from the story The Little White Dot, where there's a horrible um, witchy-type demon emerging from a TV. That one's pretty striking. I mean, Shirley Bellwood, as we mentioned, the painting she did, it would be a Shirley Bellwood. It would have to be um, for me. Her paintings for the annuals and covers are amazing. Um, the final one is particularly great. It's misty all in blues and blacks, and her hand is kind of raised, a bit like she's waving goodbyes. That's the cover for the 86 annual. But for me, in all honesty, it would probably be one of Shirley Bellwood's inside cover pen and ink illustrations. As I say, they appear on the inside cover of every issue um, with 
the kind of calligraphed welcome to the issue in Misty's voice. Um, she actually didn't do 101 of these. She did 54 of these, and the rest are sort of chopped and changed and mushed up together, um, flipped to create new new images out of her original work. But they are they're so kind of delicate, and they're just sort of black pen and ink, and they often you know um, drift off into kind of dot work or or misty kind of lines and so on. It would be one of those, I think. Okay. And I will post all these images on the socials when the uh, podcast comes out, uh, which will be in early June. And, um, yeah, we grant you all of those to hang in your virtual (laughs) art gallery. They become yours now and nobody else can pick them. (laughs) Excellent. I'm I'm like you. I'm, you know, I'm taken by the cover images and I've chosen the cover of the the third volume, the Wolf Girl volume, which, again, like you say, is probably a composite, but it's got that Shirley Bellwood misty it's got the bat and the moon the sort of misty logo almost uh and i like the title and everything on there as well so i'd probably choose that one yeah it's, it's a good pick it's it's say so that the when they started putting those covers together they look fantastic the coloring is generally so good and i love the colors on that one because it's all purplish and so on yes as you say the misty moon and bat logo um by jack cunningham um you know is, is absolutely great i think um we love the typeface and so on um, I am lucky enough to have a bit of bespoke misty art, actually. Uh, when I, I got sent some sketches by Maria Barrera um, oh, right. after speaking to her, um, which she did um, in March 2018, so, you know, um, for me, um, which are absolutely beautiful. Um, so I'm, I'm super happy um, with that as a massive fangirl and, you know, incredibly kind of her, you know, given that she doesn't draw much anymore and so on. So, yeah. Fantastic. I mean, yeah, lovely to have something like that from one of the original Misty artists. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic, Judah. It's been great. I mean, we should probably mention that all of Misty collections that we've talked about are available from uh, the Rebellion 2080 online store. As is, of course, um, not from Rebellion, but from your own book, Gothic for Girls, Misty and British Comics, available from all good bookshops. I've been reading it on the Kindle. Uh, so that's great tell us about the other book gothic in comics and graphic novels which was your earlier book yeah so that's 2014 that was um drawn out of a chapter of my phd but adapted to try and be a bit more accessible than that i suppose what i'm trying to do in that is to draw parallels between comics and gothic more generally and try and use gothic critical theory to understand how stories are told in comics Um, and draw comparisons between the two kind of genres I guess so I look at the history of comics and I look at the history of gothic um, and how they've all kind of touched on had similar touchstones perhaps to do with things like censorship and intertextuality and self-awareness and how their kind of history and their audience has developed so that's kind of the first sort of section of it it's got that comparative historical sort of introduction and reading and then the second section kind of uses gothic critical theory to revalue formal comics theory and as we kind of mentioned i bring sort of three main concepts this idea of haunting this idea of excess and this idea of sort of the hidden the de- um, the crypt um and use them to analyze the comics page and kind of say you know perhaps this is another way of understanding what's going on with the storytelling um so i kind of argue that the page is haunted by similarities with previous panels or layouts that all comics kind of storytelling relies extensively on excess because we have these multiple visual perspectives as our viewpoint jumps about, moves in and out of the story, as narration can address us directly or or not, and that comics narratives also exploit the hidden and the unseen, um, you know, in the gutters, in the panels, and in the way that the readers must interpret the meaning of the panel by looking at its background as well as its foreground. 
Uh, the third section kind of looks at its similarities between Gothic and comics cultures and the way it uses key ideas, so things like performance, internal divisions, and so on. And then finally, I close with two chapters um, that look at gothic archetypes um and i picked vampires and zombies because i like zombies um because you know why wouldn't you yes wouldn't i exactly so yeah it's 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 a different thing but it's um you know i suppose it's just trying to draw attention to how one of these things can usefully help us understand the other and the links that perhaps haven't been made explicit before and i'm halfway through that book on the kindle at the moment and that is great stuff as well. I'm particularly, of course, I'm a huge Sandman fan. I've done an episode of this podcast with my daughter about the Sandman uh, book, uh, A Game of You. And um, so I'm particularly enjoying your insights on Sandman, making me look at the pages in a different way. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very focused on kind of the the sort of DC Vertigo stabler titles, I guess, and its predecessors as kind of, you know, House of Mystery, House of Secrets and so on. It's, it's focused on that aspect rather than really being focused on horror comics because it's more about how these gothic ideas remain in comics, you know, um, at this day rather than, look, here's some horror comics, they're gothic too. So, yes, yeah, I mean, Sandman was a big entry point to comics for me, um, as I'm sure it was for many, many, many people back in the, the early 90s. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, incredibly striking in terms of its art and so on. Game of You is great. See, that's another female story. Yeah, absolutely, yes. That's a fantastic story. Um, uh, go back to, as I say, go back to my episode with my daughter, Jenny, um, oh. who's actually, she was, uh, she was at Central St. Martin's with uh, Roger Sabin as her tutor. Right. And yeah. uh, she remembers you coming there to lecture about The Walking Dead, I believe. Really? That's amazing, yeah. Uh, I say I, I have taught occasionally at, at Central St. Martins. Um, and, yeah, I've, I've gone to do a kind of lecture every so often um, on it being on existentialism and The Walking Dead, I think. That's fantastic. Yes. I mentioned I was going to be talking to you. And she said, oh, yes, I know her. <laughs> she came to do a lecture. I'm everywhere, see? <laughs> Ever present. And as we've said, you're the go-to misty person, but also yeah. now working on a Spellbound database and other comics as well. Any future projects that you can tell us about? Um, I'm supposed to be having some downtime, um, but I'm not doing that. Right. Um, so, no, I'm working on a couple of academic books that are co-authors. Um, one's an essential guide to comic scholarship um, that's sort of give a big lit review of all the scholarship about comics and different um, sub areas that's out there. Another's a bigger companion to um, literary media, so looking at the kind of influences between literature and other forms of media and new technologies these days and how they've affected each other. Um, I've been involved, I've just got involved with a bigger project called Lost in Translation that's trying to increase the international give and take of comic scholarship by getting um, works translated, um, notably between German and English scholars. Um, so that's been quite interesting. And one of the things I'm, I'm trying to get off the ground um, with a colleague at Bournemouth University, Ian Stevenson, is a larger scale British comics database that is going to try and sort of scoop up and grab as much detail on these titles as as possible um, and put that all in a central place for people to kind of peruse and find out. Um, so that's something we'd really like to, to get working on at some point. Fantastic. Well, lots to look forward to as well. And of course, there's your website. We've mentioned julioran.com uh, forward slash Misty, which I'll put in the show notes, which is where people can find more about uh, your work on Misty and the database, um, find out story details. And if they can contribute extra missing creators, that would be, I guess, very much appreciated. 
Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's, it's always, you know, all this stuff is a collaborative effort. You only have to go on the forums and, and everything else to see that. So, yeah, um, anyone who knows anything about British British girls comics and, and Misty in particular, please do come find me. <laughs> Great stuff. Julia, it's been fantastic having you on to talk about your book uh, or your books and, of course, the Misty collections and the uh, the great history of Misty. Um, I'm just so grateful for your time. I've taken up slightly more than we promised, but thank you so much. That's okay. I mean, it's, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for the invite. I love talking about Misty, so super happy. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. So thank you to my guest, Dr. Julia Round. Thank you to everyone for listening to Megacity Book Club. As ever, find all the details at megacitybookclub.com, including links to Julia's website. You can find the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the 2000 E forums, and on Spotify. And get in touch with me if you want to come on the podcast and review a book by emailing mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. And that'll do us. Until next time on Mega City Book Club, when we're passing judgment on another great book, uh, it's time for goodbyes. Goodbye from me and... Goodbye from me.